0: All right, we are uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 44 today, and uh, I'd like to get through about the first 17 verses or so today, Uh, Lord willing, there's a lot in there to talk about, so we'll see how well we do, but uh, this is... um, This is kind of the, kind of the watershed event in the story of Joseph, uh, chapter 44 and chapter 45. This is where uh, finally everything kind of coalesces together, and uh, the brothers undergo this test that Joseph has uh, devised for them without their knowledge. And uh, as we go through the story, we'll see how the brothers perform. Uh, especially Judah, but also the other brothers as well and there 's some interesting insight in these verses today uh, as to the frame of mind of the brothers and how they respond uh, so this is kind of really the this is the climax in one sense of of the whole story of Joseph these next few lessons that we 're on, so this is kind of what we've been working towards, and it's a part of the Joseph story, of course that it's in many ways the most touching and the most uh, the most uh, moving. But uh, but before we dig into that, we looked uh, last week at the last ten verses or so in chapter 43. So let's try to remember what did we talk about last week? Incidentally, while I'm thinking about it. Uh, next Sunday is Christmas Sunday. There is a worship service, which I assume is at normal time, which would be 1045, unless they say otherwise. But there is no Sunday school next week, so our next lesson will be on New Year's Day two weeks from today. That's
1: so. why you let us you do. The service
0: starts at 1040. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, no, okay. Well, I, I've been in there at 1040 and it didn't start. It's supposed to at 1040. Okay, at 1040. Okay, all right. Okay.
2: One thing I am going to take into
1: it, but the dream had not been fulfilled about
0: verse
1: twenty-six and twenty-eight. Okay. It was the second time they'd been there, but they didn't bow down the first
0: time. Well, they bowed down, but not all of them because Benjamin wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. So it's really not the dream is really not fulfilled until the second trip. Yeah, that's right. What else?
1: I think you mentioned that uh, what the measure of faith was about. Okay. And uh, was it great faith and was not? Mm-hmm. I was struck by that. You know, it's continue and you know, so don't give up, and that's a, a mark of great faith. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I
0: I always used to think it was you know that I had great faith if I could believe in for really big things you know like moving a mountain or whatever you know and then then I had great faith but but the real measure of our faith is is whether it's something big like that or a small thing whether we just persevere until we actually see the promise that's really the measure of great faith so yeah yeah yeah. And uh, and the uh, illustration of that that I like to use, and I mentioned this last week, is is the story of Peter when he walks on water. Remember when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on water, and he gets almost to the Lord, and he doesn't make it. it you know, he gets he loses sight of the Lord, and he begins to sink, and he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord pulls him up out of the water, and then the Lord reprimands him because of his little faith. And I've always thought about that. I said, well, wait a minute. This is guy walked on water. <laughs> you know, Jesus, nobody else is out there with Yeah, nobody else is out there with him. Here's Peter. He's out there walking on water. That's great faith, if you ask me. I mean, he didn't make it all the way, but he did pretty good for a while. But Jesus says that was little faith. So he had enough faith to walk on water, but he didn't have faith to walk on water long enough to get to Jesus. And uh, so I, that's always been instructive to me. That's, I don't even remember how we got on that last week. Oh, we were talking about the fulfillment of the dreams and the fulfillment of the promise, and and Joseph trusting and believing God until he saw that. That's how we got on that. Twenty plus years. Twenty, yeah, twenty-two years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the promise was the promise to Joseph that his brothers would bow down to him. The dreams that he originally had in chapter thirty-seven that eventually uh, his brothers and then his parents too would eventually bow down before him and he had that promise so all those years in Egypt as he's a slave and you know all these things he's going through in Egypt and then he's eventually promoted to this position of power during all those years the book of Psalms says that that uh, until his word until the Lord's word came to pass the word of the Lord was testing Joseph and so so, it was that promise that God gave Joseph in his dreams there in chapter 37 that Joseph held on to and helped him to be the kind of a man that he was all those years until he finally saw the promise fulfilled. So, walking on water, what the oh the, oh, with, oh, uh, the in Oh, in that sense, the promise is him get actually getting to Christ. He asked Jesus. He said, he said to Jesus, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come to me. And so, he gets out of the boat and he starts to walk. But he doesn't make it all the way. So so the promise there was actually getting to Christ. So,
1: yeah. You know, when you start thinking about that, the, uh, the promise to Joseph, I mean, that's not... You know, you think in today's world and the, the health and wealth teaching is so abundant and, you know, things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, you know, things are not always okay. And, yeah. and that promise that, that Joseph got is not... It maybe doesn't like really fit in with what you think. Yeah. yeah, so what does that mean? Your brothers are gonna bow down? Yeah. That, yeah. You know, that maybe a promise of a position? or I don't really know. Yeah.
0: Well and I don't think it was even really clear to Joseph either at the time. <coughs> except that we do know that at the time that he got the dreams, the time he had the dreams was a time when his brothers, it says, could not speak a kind word to him. So he has all this animosity and belligerence and stuff from his brothers and and now he gets this dream that sometime down the road these brothers who have nothing but contempt for him are eventually going to be bowing down to him so it was it was a sense of personal promise but it was also a promise of of he was going to be in a position of serving and being able to help his family let me have
1: to rethink been uh, very <coughs> promises because I, I don't tend to think of it in those kinds of terms. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to get this thing or this, you know, this position, this job, this money, this whatever. I tend to think of it in that way, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, because Jesus needs
2: be to do
1: something. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah, problem. yeah. So we, have, we have a supply that is not power. So yes, uh, uh, yeah. Good.
0: Anything else from last week?
1: <clears throat> I like the, the metaphor that we uh, talked. We were talking about the present, They made a big deal about this present that uh, mm-hmm. put together all the best of, and you know a variety of things of food and balm and whatever else, and they prepared it so it was a significant thing, and they got there and uh, virtually appears to be ignored. Mm-hmm. And you the think that the, the metaphor being that we bring our best gifts to the Lord, and, and they're, and I guess, in comparison to significance mm-hmm. for what He gives to us, they're really, mm-hmm. really insignificant. Yeah. And uh, the gift's important; it's important for us to do it. But in terms of what Christ gives us back, it's really
0: it pales in and yeah, yeah really pales, pales in, in significance. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's the about the steward. Mm-hmm. this relationship was kind of fascinating to me because he knew about Joseph Scott and he spoke about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he, could, he also shared the fact that he was an <coughs> the
0: character of and what he's doing in his family. Yeah, he really is an interesting character, and it, it, it's, uh, you know, he's kind of there. And he plays a very important role, of course, as Joseph's kind of mediator between he and his brothers. And and it does kind of seem like he he has a pretty good sense of you know of of where Joseph is going with this thing and why this is important. And he does it so meticulously according to Joseph's instructions. He's very careful. Uh, so uh, yes, yes. And so, you know, I am inclined to kind of wonder if, you know, Joseph has shared with him and and, and if, if this man has come to faith. And of course, we don't know, but it's, you know, he really is an interesting character to think about.
2: Yeah.
0: And we'll see more of him today. He's kind of really put on the hot seat today.
1: <laughs>
0: he gets to do all the dirty work. But uh, So, anything else from last week?
2: Joseph seated them in according to their
1: birthright, and
0: then looked at them each, has their astonishment because he doesn't say anymore. Yeah, yeah, and actually, I think today in today's lesson we'll get a little bit more understanding of why Joseph is doing that. Okay, why does he put them in that particular order? What is he trying? What is he trying to do in their minds uh, as he's uh, as he's uh, carrying out this plan that he's got to, to test them? Well, let's pick it up then in chapter forty-four. And beginning in verse one, it says, then he commanded, this is Joseph, commanded his house stewards saying, uh, uh, let me stop for a minute. We didn't mention this from last week. They had this big feast. Remember, they have a the big feast. he have the brothers. They all sit there in the order of their birth. And they had this big feast and and it says they drank freely. And I pointed out that uh, though most commentators assume that the brothers were not drunk, actually the The literal interpretation of the word there means that they drank until they were drunk. So I I don't know if they were drunk, but I'm assuming that they were at least pretty loose. (laughs) And and I'm kind of thinking that that possibly what Joseph's doing there is trying to kind of loosen them up. So if there's anything that's inclined to come out, uh, it will. (laughs) And uh, so that seems to be kind of what's going on there. So then it says, after the feast is over, In verse uh, 1 of 44, it says, Then he commanded his house stewards, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid me evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money in which we found in the mouth of our sacks, which we, uh, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave. And the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man had loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a one as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you... Go up in peace to your Father. Okay. Well, there's a lot going on here, and uh, we'll see how much we get a chance to talk about this morning. Uh, but what, uh, as I mentioned, what Joseph is doing here now is, of course, as he is now putting into putting into motion this plan that he has created. I, you know, as I contemplate this plan that he's got and all the details of it, it, you really do get some insight into the wisdom of this guy. I mean, I, I'm i sure I could never come up with a plan like this. But what Joseph is doing, and you'll see this as we go through the story, what Joseph is doing is he's, recon, he's reconstructing the scenario at Dotham. Remember, Dotham is where he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he's He's kind of reconstructing that scenario in order to measure his brothers and see, given the same situation now, will they respond as they did then or have they changed? So even though Joseph has heard the overheard Reuben say what he did about now comes the reckoning for his blood and And he will, of course, overhear other things. As he overhears those things, Joseph is aware of the words that they're speaking. But Joseph is not interested in words. Joseph is interested in, are they really changed? It's not a question of simply, are they saying, well, we're sorry for what we did because now we're getting caught. (laughs) Or have they really changed? And what Joseph is doing is he's constructing a test that will put these brothers in in a similar situation but in one sense more of a pressure cooker uh, than they had at Dothan but in a similar situation where they will have an opportunity to abandon the favored favored brother to save their own skins and he's going to see how they will respond and and uh, the lesson is very instructive in that so that's kind of what he's doing here and uh And he begins by uh, uh, giving the instructions uh, to his house steward to fill the sacks with food as they did before and to put the money in the sacks as they did before. And of course, the money in the sacks is no longer an issue. The first time it was a big issue because the brothers thought it was some kind of a frame up or something. And so they were very afraid. But once they returned to Egypt the second time, they found out that the money in their sacks was actually the kindness of God, okay? And that it was God's kindness to them and it had been returned to them out of God's kindness. And so now when the money is put in their sacks, it's mentioned simply that the money is returned in their sacks just so that we'll know that, that Joseph is just continuing to show the kindness to his brothers that he showed before, okay? So he returns the money, but the money is never an issue from this point on, okay? So when they open their sacks to be inspected, uh, you'll notice it doesn't say anything about the money. That's not an issue anymore. Okay, that's just uh, that's just more of Joseph's kindness. So the money is returned to the sacks. But then the instruction is given to the house steward specifically to put the cup. He says, put my cup, the silver cup, into the youngest sack. That's into Benjamin's sack. And so the, this cup is put into the sack. Now, You'll notice Joseph does not call it his divining cup. He just simply calls it his cup, and specifies my silver cup. Okay, and the cup that he's referring to, the word there, uh, as I understand in the Hebrew, is not a reference to a to a small regular small drinking cup, but is actually a fairly large, significant goblet type of thing. It's a very beautiful, uh, very beautiful silver goblet. Okay, and this is what he's. This is what he's referring to, and he wants this particular goblet, this very valuable uh, piece of furniture, placed into Benjamin's sack. Okay. Now, I kind of feel sorry for Benjamin. <laughs> I don't know about you, but you know he's kind of he's kind of the pawn in this whole thing. You know, this is a this is a, a kind of a tug of war, if you will, or a, a struggle between Joseph and his ten older brothers and poor Benjamin. He's just kind of in the middle. But in reality, it, that's the way it looks. And it kind of looks like he's a victim in this whole thing. But in reality, what we'll see is that Joseph is actually taking precautionary measures to protect Benjamin. And we'll see that as we go through the story. So uh, so this, the uh, goblet is placed in Benjamin's sack. And it says, you'll notice it's kind of interesting... In verse 3, it says, as soon as it was light, the men were sent on their way. Uh, You know, that kind of caught my attention that they were sent. It's not just simply that they, you know, got up and packed their bags and left the next morning. But there was actually a sending of them. And uh, later in the passage, it refers to Joseph was still at the house when they returned. So the impression that I get is that the brothers apparently spent the night at Joseph's house. And that Joseph was involved in this sending off of the brothers in the in the morning. So, so you have not only do you have this very warm reception that they had the day before, and the great feast where they all sit around and just have a great time together and drink freely, and they're, they're just having a good time together. But it appears that you know that as they as they get up to leave in the morning, Joseph's there to see them off and to send them off. Uh, and, uh, so Joseph is creating a situation that completely puts these guys at ease as we'll see.
1: And
0: And there are the donkeys again, you know, and, uh, and I was thinking about there are the donkeys and it's as if to say we're out of here scot-free, you know, we were worried about being made slaves with our donkeys And now here we are, we're out, we're we're loaded down with as much food as we can carry, and and we've got our donkeys, uh, we're safe, our donkeys are safe, uh, and and we just had a great time with Zaphir, this great ruler of Egypt. And, uh, you know, you couldn't imagine a better outcome as they leave. So they get up and they leave. Now they're sent away. I I and as I say as I read the passage, it seems to me that Joseph was involved in being there to see them off as they're sent away, and they go. And then as soon as they're out of the city, just a little ways away, then Joseph calls his house steward and he says, Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, I want you to chase these guys down. Here's what I want you to say to them. And he gives them he gives them the actual words to say. Now, as I read the description of what Joseph tells him, it appears to me that he probably actually told him more than is recorded here because there's kind of some gaps in there uh, in, in kind of the logic of the things that are said. So it appears to me that there was probably more instructions than, than are actually recorded here by the narrator. But there are three specific things that Joseph tells the narrator to say to his to say to his brothers when he overtakes them what are those three specific things that he that he wants pointed out to the brothers or he wants communicated to the brothers
2: why have you repaid evil
0: for good? okay so the first one is why have you repaid evil for good the second one is what Okay, is okay. This is a special cup that's missing. It's the cup he drinks out of, and it's the one he uses for divination. Okay. So the first thing is, why have you repaid evil for good? The second thing is, boy, you guys, you guys messed up here because you took the one he uses for divination. This is an important cup. And then what's the third thing? Pardon. Okay, and and, and more specifically, he says, um, "You have done wrong wrong in doing this." Yeah. Okay. You have so you know it's it's uh, excuse me, I drew drew a blank there. Uh, He says uh, in. uh, In in verse 4, he says, Why have you repaid evil for good? In verse 5, he says, This is the cup that my Lord uses for divination. And in verse 5, he says, You've done wrong. Okay, So, three things that he says. And I think there is some significance to each one of those things. Whatever else he might have told him to say, it's clear the narrator wants us to know the, the main thrust of what he's trying to say to his brothers. And the first thing is, Why have you repaid evil for good? And the significance of that is that this whole idea of evil and good is is a, a, a dominant theme that runs throughout this whole Joseph narrative, right? So this whole idea of repaying evil for good, that starts all the way back in chapter 37, doesn't it? It starts back in chapter 37 where Joseph is, is pretty much the kind of the goody two-shoes, so to speak. He's the good son. And, and and the brothers, they look at him and they're jealous and they resent him and they resent the favor that, that Joseph gets from his father, which, of course, Joseph has no... Con- so, Joseph really has has really not done anything particularly culpable. Uh, as I pointed out when we were in that part of the story, I, I think maybe he was maybe not as wise as he could have been in some of the things he said. But... But Joseph is pretty much innocent and he's treated evilly. He's treated with evil. So, this whole idea of evil and good starts very early in the story. And the idea of of receiving evil for good begins very early in the story. And that's been Joseph's that 's kind of been joseph 's experience as he goes through life he 's treated this way by his brother several times, and then he gets to Egypt and he does very well for potiphar and and Then this thing, whole whole thing happens with Potiphar 's wife and even there he takes a, he takes an upright stand he 's morally pure he does the right thing, and what does he get for it? He ends up being thrown into prison and and then again the, the, these two guys come and they need their dreams interpreted, and Joseph interprets their dreams and he asks. He asks the cupbearer to remember him. <laughs> he does these good things for the, and the cupbearer just forgets him. And he's, you know, he's returning. So this idea of be, be returning evil for good just kind of is all the way through the passage. It's all the way through the story. But the flip side of that is, is that over and over again, although Joseph experiences being given evil for the good that he does, how does he respond? What does he do? Okay, he maintains his integrity, but even more profoundly or as profoundly, he returns good for evil, doesn't he? So over and over again in Joseph's life, he's just such an example to us of when we are done wrong, will we turn around and do good in return? And that's what we see with Joseph. So even though this test that he's doing for his brothers is, is very difficult for them, his ultimate intention here is to do them good. And, um, and and he keeps showing that to them by putting the money in their sacks and entertaining them with this great feast and things. So so we have this whole idea of evil for good and we see also throughout the story the whole idea of good for evil. And, and then uh, the other idea of evil and good that we see throughout this whole narrative is the idea that God takes evil and he turns it to good, which is, of course, the... Kind of the main thrust or the main point of the whole story is that God takes this whole, all this evil and God turns it to good. So when. Pardon? Well, in this particular case, they didn't do anything, yes. Uh, but as becomes clear from the, what Judah says, is, is that Judah realizes this is not about a cup. This is about something else, as Judah realizes so powerfully. Uh, so so anyway this idea of good and evil is kind of woven throughout the whole story. And and as I was thinking about that obviously the narrator wants us to think about that. He points that out to us again that one of the things that Joseph is saying to his brothers is you got to think about this guys this whole thing of evil for good. And when when the when the uh cup or uh, excuse me when the steward says to the brothers, why have you returned me evil for good? Or why have you returned evil for good? I think what Joseph is wanting to do is he's wanting to, if you will, activate their conscience. Because in reality, they've not done anything evil here. As Charles was pointing out, they're not taking this cup. They're completely innocent of that. But what Joseph is wanting them to think about is you guys really are guilty of returning evil for good. And why do you do that? Okay. But even more than that, I think one of the things the narrator is trying to, to do is this, of course, is Moses as he puts this story down in writing uh, for the children of Israel out in the wilderness. And I think what this, this whole idea that God turns evil to good is an important lesson for the children of Israel to learn as they're out in the wilderness. Because they have just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now, if you had just come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, how would you be thinking about the last 400 years? You know, you wouldn't be thinking real well of it, would you? And I think, what, I think one of the things that, that, that the Holy Spirit is trying to do here as he records this for the children of Israel out in the wilderness is for them to realize that lot, these last 400 years were hard. They were difficult. But God had a higher purpose that was in mind and God was doing a bigger thing. Okay. So this whole idea of evil for good and good for evil and God turning evil to good, this is woven throughout the whole story and that just comes out to us here. So he says, why have you returned evil uh, for good? Uh, and then he says, is this not the one from which my Lord drinks? And which is indeed, which he indeed uses for divination. OK. And this is where, you know, we all go, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? Joseph practicing divination. OK. Well, I don't think Joseph practices divination. OK. And uh, there's several reasons why I would say this. Um, but before I get into all that, what is this divining cup? What's he talking about here? Well, uh, for all of you people who are Lord of the Rings fanatics, you know, you know what a divining cup is because you see it in the story uh, in, the, in the first book in the Fellowship of the Ring. It's in the movie as well. When. Frodo and his traveling companions, the Fellowship of the Ring, are in that forest. I forget what they call it, Galadriel's forest. And while he's there in Galadriel's forest, at one point he and Galadriel go down and they uh, go down to this area. And there's this beautiful silver bowl, right? And they pour the she pours this water into this bowl. And then Frodo comes up and he looks into the bowl. And when he looks into the bowl, he sees. For those of you who are not familiar with the story, this is all, you know, great to you, I realize. But for those of us who know the story, it's fun. Uh, so he looks into the bowl and he he looks into this water in this beautiful silver basin. And he can see the shire. He can see his home and he can see the future of the shire by looking in this bowl. Well, that's actually a representation of the very kind of thing that was practiced in Egypt at the time.
1: Yeah, more culture at home. Uh, farmers home Oklahoma used
0: to use a dining rod. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, the the idea of these bowls then was what they would do is they take a they take it be a basin or a bowl or or a, a beautiful cup like is discussed here, and they would pour into this uh, water sometimes water and oil or they put water in it and they and they throw in. Uh, pieces of gold and silver, sometimes precious stones or whatever. And then from, they wouldn't like in the movie, what it shows, uh, what it shows is that Frodo can actually, you know, it's like he's seeing a DVD, you know, he's watching a video, you know, well, that's not what they would see. Okay, because this is just a totally natural phenomenon, right? There's nothing really supernatural going on here. They just believe there is. Okay. So what do they see? They just see the stones or they see the oil. But the various patterns that are created and the reflections and the patterns of the stones or whatever on the bottom of the basin and the reflections of the water are all then interpreted. And remember when we talked about the magicians that Pharaoh called to give him the interpretation of his dream. They actually had books written. Uh, You know, explaining how do you interpret all these different things when you're doing divination and practicing all these magical arts? How do you interpret them? So, they actually had entire books that were written that would tell you when you looked into these divine cups. And you'd thrown in your stones or poured in, you know, and then what the patterns, you how you would then read the patterns or interpret the patterns, okay? It's kind of like palm reading that we do today. You know, okay, what are these patterns in my hand here? So there's, you know, if you read the books, you'll know exactly what they mean. Oh, it doesn't really mean that. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that the house steward is referring to here. And Joseph has instructed the house steward to say this to the brothers, okay? That this is a cup that he uses for divination. Now, like I say, I don't believe for a moment that Joseph ever practiced divination. It's interesting that Joseph himself, when he himself speaks to his brothers about about this cup, he doesn't actually say that he practices divination. You notice he words it very carefully. You see how he says it? He says, do you not know that one such as I can practice divination? He's, he's just leading these guys. They know what the Egyptians do and they know how the Egyptians practice this. Sort of thing. So he's just leading. It's part of his ruse. But there is nothing in the character of Joseph, in the entire story of Joseph, that would lead us to believe that he would ever practice divination. In fact, we see just the opposite. That when... When Pharaoh can't get his dreams interpreted, he calls all his magicians in and all his wise men and they come in and they do all that stuff. They do all the divination. They do all the magic stuff and they can't figure out what his dreams mean. So then they call Joseph in and Joseph comes in and Pharaoh tells his dream to Joseph. And what does Joseph do? He gives the credit to God because God's spirit is in him and then he just immediately gives the interpretation. No no delay, no running off to get his divining cuts, nothing like that. There's no evidence that Joseph ever, in all the wisdom that he had, in all the uh, the wisdom that clearly Scripture says was given to him and that he possessed because the spirit of God was with him, that there was nothing that Joseph ever did to practice divination. Okay. So, there's no reason to assume that Joseph is practicing divination, but we should read these verses in reference to his divining cup as part of the ruse, as part of the story uh, that he's trying to create in order to influence his brothers and carry out this test that he's carrying out with his brothers. So, the question is then, why does he want his brothers to believe that he's capable of divination? And would his brothers believe that it made any difference and others do his brothers believe in the power of divination okay those are the questions that come to my mind as i read this well now this whole thing about the seating order of the brothers at the table and the order of the search notice it was also from oldest to youngest all becomes more significant to us and we realize what joseph is doing that Joseph is trying to impress the brothers with the idea that this guy has some kind of inside supernatural track to knowledge which they have not disclosed to him. Right? He's trying to, he's, he's trying to create in his brothers the fear that somehow this guy has some kind of supernatural ability to know what's true about us. Even though we've not told him. Well, why would he do that?
1: He would demonstrate his power. Well, I was thinking that perhaps He's going to prove to them. He said he's going to do this thing. So he's probably going to do it. So, you know, he says he's going to make a slave. He's going to make him a slave. Or...
0: Okay. Okay. That's probably part of it. But if. Let's just. You just think about it yourself. You're dealing with Somebody kind of a tense situation and you find out and, and and the question is whether or not you're going to do things the way you ought to do things or whatever and you find out that they have a supernatural knowledge of you they can figure out they can find out things about you that you don't necessarily want them to find out how would that influence how you conduct yourself you're going to tell the truth you're going to speak the truth you're going to deal with integrity
2: because you know he's going to know it anyway
0: so what Joseph is doing is he's built, he's, in, he's instilling into his brothers a fear that he has this inside supernatural knowledge and, and it would incline them then to speak the truth, to be honest with him. Okay, Now, I don't know, we have no idea whether or not Joseph knows from his past experience with his brothers whether they were superstitious or not. There's a good chance they were, given other things we know in the past that they were, given other things we know about them, uh, given their intermingling with the Canaanites and all that sort of thing, it's a good possibility that Joseph knew, my brothers are superstitious. (laughs) But even if they weren't superstitious, even if they didn't believe in the power of divination as an inherently powerful instrument, it's very clear to them that this guy apparently practices divination and he's got knowledge of us. We have not disclosed to him. He has some kind of supernatural. So he's practicing divination. And if he's not getting it from divination, then God's let God's cool him in anyway. So what Joseph is doing is he's instilling in his brothers this sense of we, we better be absolutely honest here because this guy, <laughs> this guy's going to know it if we aren't.
2: Okay. I think the uh, you can tell from what they say all the way through this, that what they did twenty years ago is still in the forefront of their mind. I mean, it's like I think a lot of the times we're like that. It's like you know we sin, uh, we're just waiting for the axe to fall. And yeah. I mean, for twenty years they've been they've been covering up this guilt.
1: Yeah.
2: And they're just waiting. So it would be an easy jump for them whether they believe in divinity yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, God is going to eat these out here to get us at some point in time because that's what we think here. Yeah, yeah. And that's clearly
0: what Judas says then. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of a, I mean, I think we do that. I know, you know,
2: we sin sometimes and things go wrong later down the line. Okay, now it's God being back with me? Or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I deserve this. Yeah, yeah. Instead of, and I think it's a, not to treat sin lightly, but it's, it's kind of a misnomer of God's grace and forgiveness. And yeah, this,
1: this has nothing to
2: do with their sin. God's about to be really good to them. Yeah. You know, well, you
1: know,
0: but in one sense, it does have to do with their sin because, in one sense, God can't be really good with them unless they come to grips with it. Yeah, yeah, unless they come clean with it. But but it's not that God's wanting to punish them. It's that God's God's wanting them to repent and come clean. And then, and then he will pour out his and grace. As yeah.
2: Christians, sometimes we, even though we confess our sins and death, mm-hmm. they're still yeah. in the back of our mind. Yeah. Like, well, I really deserve this. Yeah. And then we're down the line of
0: uh... Yeah. And, and Joseph quite wisely knows how to use that, that, that aspect of human nature, if you will, uh, to accomplish his purpose. And Joseph's purpose, of course, is not to punish his brothers, but simply to find out not the words of repentance, but whether or not there are deeds of repentance, and that's what he wants to see so uh and so the and the last thing he says is uh the thing you have done is wrong he just he just nails them, of course it isn't they haven't done anything, okay, but what Joseph is doing and in instructing the steward to say that to him is is he's if you will he's he's trying to Activate their conscience, bring up, bring up the past, so to speak. He, he's not mentioning the past to them, but by, but by accusing them so clearly and definitively of having done wrong, he's trying to activate their conscience. How will they now deal with the new circumstances in light of the past and in light of how they think about that? So, so then uh the steward takes those words from Joseph and he chases down the brothers and he stops them and he makes the accusation this is before they've actually opened the bags he makes the accusation and how do the brothers respond okay not only do they say they're innocent but they really kind of accuse the steward of being stupid <laughs> i mean Think about this, guy. I mean, we brought back all that money all the way from Canaan. Why in the world would we stoop to steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? This does not make any sense. They are absolutely incredulous. They're just absolutely incredulous that this guy would accuse them of such a thing. Okay? And then what do they do? Yeah, then they really go overboard. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They
0: they they really go overboard and then they make this vow and they say, Okay, the one that did it, you can kill him and the rest of us will be your slave. Okay. Well it's a stupid thing to say. But it reveals a great deal about where these guys are. What we discover about these brothers in their protestation of innocence and in this very rash vow they make, what we discover about these brothers is a couple things. One is, we discover how completely at ease they have been put by the feasting and the reception and the money in their sacks and all that kind of... They, these guys... Remember all that fear and apprehension and, you know and dread that they had the day before? All that's gone. I mean, think about it. These are guys who for for several months or a year lived in absolute dread because somebody had put something in their sacks and they didn't know who put it there. Right? Now, they're being accused of having something in their sacks and... They know they didn't put anything in their sacks and so they're willing to stake their lives on the fact there's nothing in their sacks. Come on, guys. This has already happened to you. So you you see the effect of what Joseph has done on their minds? He has so alleviated them of their fear and they've totally forgotten that somebody has already stuck something in their sacks they didn't know about. And they're willing to stake one of their, one of their brother's lives on the line on the assumption there's nothing in our sack because we didn't put it there. It's an indication of how absolutely at ease these guys are now. We're, you know, we're buddy-buddy with Zappanath-Penea. <laughs> we feasted with him. We spent the night at his house. He sent us off this morning. We're on good terms with this guy. There's nothing in our sacks. And not
1: only that, we are all innocent. Okay. None of us would do anything
0: like that. Okay. And that in itself is instructive. These are guys who have sacked the city of Shechem. They've sold the guy into slavery. They've lied to their father. They know the kind of characters they have for brothers. But at this point, they are absolutely convinced that not a one of them would have done such a thing. What does that tell you about it? I think it tells you these brothers have not only changed, but they know that one another has changed. And they are absolutely certain that, that it's unthinkable that any one of them would have done such a thing. And I'm willing to stack my I'm willing to I'm willing to, to, to stake my freedom on the confidence that every one of my brothers is honest. That is a change. So when we get to the story of Judah, which we're going to get to uh, in Judah's plea, and we get to Judah, and we're going to focus a lot on Judah and the change that takes place in Judah, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that all of these guys have changed. This is a, this is a different collection of guys than we were dealing with at Dauphin 22 years ago. And I don't know how that change came about, I don't know how much of that change has just occurred and how much of it has occurred over a period of years, but these are guys who have changed. You
1: know, I, didn't, I didn't think they'd change I thought they are just being stupid.
0: You know, uh, Making rash promises. Uh... No, no, because it, it's very... The promise was rash. But what we're, we're going to see when they actually get to Joseph's house is they stick to it. And basically what they're saying at this point is it's one for all and all for one. Now, that's different because what do they do? So the guy searches their sacks, It says they hurry and they get the stuff down off their sacks. You know, obviously we're innocent, you know, so they hurry and they get the sacks down and they open their sacks. And he comes around and he searches in each sack and oldest team, he gets to Benjamin and bingo, there's the there's the cup. What do they do? They tear their clothes and then each one of them loads his donkey and returns to the city. Each one. Not just Benjamin. But every one of those guys. Now, the the steward kind of took their vow and said, okay, you know, I, I realize you're, you're willing to stake some stuff here, uh, but... And, and so we'll go, we'll go with your willingness but all I'm going to ask for is all I'm going to insist on is, is the one who took it. He'll be my slave and the rest of you are innocent. What does that mean? That means that only Benjamin had to go back to the city. The rest of them could have left Benjamin at that point and gone home. And if you were them wouldn't you have been tempted to go home rather than go back into that city? If yeah, if I hadn't changed, I'd be tempted to go home. I'd say, I said,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now that is a factor, and we'll talk about that. And the next time we're together about g- going back to see Dad, that's not going to be a pleasant thing. But, but every one of these brothers says, "I'm sticking with Benjamin," and I don't know what happens. But I'm going to go back, and I'm going to try and get, get him off the hook. And if I can't get him off the hook, I'm going to stay with him. And that's what Judah says. We're going to stay here, every one of us, and every one of us is going to be a slave. These guys have changed. They are committed to this son, who quite clearly, and it will become very clear when we get into Judah's plea in, in in the last part of their chapter, become very clear that Benjamin is still the favored son, like Joseph had been. So here's their chance. Here they can, they can, they can. They can give over a brother into slavery, into Egypt, and they can go back home. Will they do it? And they say, no, we're
2: sticking with Benjamin.
0: And so they return home, they return to the city. And then I want you to notice, uh, take a look at at uh, verse 14. Anything interesting about verse 14 stick out to you? It's the first time. It's always been the brothers, the brothers, the brothers said this, the brothers said that, the brothers did this, the brothers did the men did that, the men did this, the men said that. And now here, all of a sudden, it's Judah and the brothers. And the narrator puts Judah in the forefront. And we see why as we go on in the story, because then Judah becomes the spokesman. So Judah is now the leader. And we will see what has happened to Judah. And how he has been transformed over the years. Particularly recently. We'll see how he has been transformed and changed. And and so there are, there are two things that stand out to me about this. Judah is now the leader. And that is one. It tells us something about Judah. It tells us something about his character. This is a guy who is just really. He's stepping up to the plate morally and ethically at this point. But it also tells me something about the brothers. Because in large measure. Who we follow is an indication of the kind of person we are, and before the brothers had tended to follow whoever was the kind of the worst of the bunch, but now the brothers are following Judah, and they're following Judah's lead, and they're allowing Judah to be their spokesman, and Judah is a changed man. and so this is a reflection to us, this is a reflection to us of both the character of Judah and the character of the brothers who follow his lead. Okay? And so they come to Joseph and they fall on the ground before him. It's obviously a desperate plea for mercy. And, and, and Joseph, of course, launches his accusation at them. Uh, Why have you done a deed like this? He says, Do you not know that one such as I could practice divination? He's saying, How stupid can you be? You knew you were going to be found out. That's basically what he's saying. And, uh, and then he... Uh, and then Judah answers in verse 16. It um, says, Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? It's Judah just... He's thrown in the towel, folks. He's not even going to try to defend himself. Now, they're innocent. They haven't done anything. Why does Judah now, when he's in front of Joseph... Why does he just throw in the towel? Why does he just give up and say, there's no point in me trying to defend myself? He
1: thinks the guy knows anyway.
0: But if the guy knew, knew he'd know they were innocent. The reason he gives up And he throws in the towels because he knows he's not dealing with Zappanapane. He knows he's dealing with God. And now comes the reckoning for Joseph's blood. He knows the chickens have come home to roost. He's saying, this is it. God's found us out. He's found out the iniquity of your servants. Now, when Judah is saying that, he's not admitting that they stole the cup, is he? Because they didn't. He's just simply saying to Joseph, God knows we're guilty men. Now, what Judah doesn't know, or or I should, let me say this first. What Judah is saying is, God has found out our guilt regarding our brother Joseph. But what Judah does not know is that Joseph knows that that's what Judah is saying. Joseph, when he hears that, knows these guys aren't confessing to stealing the cup because I put the cup in their sack. What they're admitting to is that they are guilty of what they did with me, and they know God has found them out. And then what's telling is, Joseph, is Judah's next response when he's next remark when he says, "We're all your slaves." The one who stole the cup, or the one whose cup, in whose cup the possession was found, I should say, and he says, "All the rest of us." Why is Judah willing for all the brothers to be made slaves? Because he realizes that that is the righteous, justice, judgment of God on their selling of their brother into slavery. It's only right that they should be made slaves. Now, Benjamin's getting sucked up into this. It's kind of the overflow of God's judgment. It kind of overflows on Benjamin, right? It seems like it. It looks like it. It looks like it to the brothers. As readers from the outside, we realize that's not exactly what's happening. But it looks like, when God is punishing the brothers or or disciplining the brothers for what they did, that it's overflowing on the innocent. And we may recoil at that, but that's the reality of life. That happens all the time. Think of the man who commits a crime and goes to prison and leaves a wife and children to suffer as he is punished for his crime. happens all the time. But just in closing, I want you to think about this. What Joseph is doing is he's wanting to get the family reconciled and get the family in a position where he can take care of them. Okay, that's what Joseph wants. So it's never Joseph's intention to enslave Benjamin or anybody else. If the brothers pass the test. But what if the brothers don't pass the test? What if the brothers take him up on his offer here and say, okay, you can have Joseph. We're leaving. We're going back home to dad. Pardon? Benjamin. Benjamin. Yes, I'm sorry. Benjamin. Yeah. What happens? What happens? Benjamin is protected.
2: protected.
0: Exactly. If they fail the test, Joseph knows these guys cannot be trusted with Benjamin's life. And I'm not sending Benjamin home with him. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, Joseph had no intention of enslaving Benjamin. I'm absolutely confident. As soon as the brothers got out of the city, Joseph was going to say to Benjamin, I'm your brother. And, you know, give him a high position in government and and protect him. But he was willing to protect Benjamin even at the cost of the life of his father. Even though it might cost his father his life, Joseph is determined; he's going to protect that little brother. He him back home.
2: Well,
0: I don't think he wants him anywhere around those brothers. Yeah, I don't think he wants him around those brothers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so Joseph, so even though it looks like the, ju- the God's judgment on the brothers is overflowing onto Benjamin, actually, what's happening is Benjamin's being protected either way. So, well, we're out of town, time, out of town. We're not out of town, but we are out of town. And uh, again, no lesson next week, but in two weeks, we'll pick up Judas' plea, which is a tremendous. It's the longest speech in all of Genesis, and it's a tremendous speech. So.